I'm Aria Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corem Podcast. Every week on the Corem Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode. In this episode, we were joined by Rabbi Jeremy Wieda and Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. Rabbi Wieda is a Rosh Hashiva at Ritz of Yeshiva University, where he holds the Gwendolyn and Joseph Strauss chair in Talmud. Also, interestingly, he was the first American to win the international Chidon Hatanah, one of the first Americans. Um, and that wasn't the reason why, but uh, that we also wanted to get him uh, to join us in this interesting conversation about uh, Tanakh study um, and contemporary Tanakh study. Um, and the perfect partner for that was, of course, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, who's just published, or not in the last uh, year or so, published with Magid Anima Amin, looking at biblical criticism, historical truth, and 13 principles of faith. And that has generated huge amounts of conversation and discussion regarding contemporary um, Tanakh scholarship. Yeah, there was actually one of uh, my favourite episodes to just sit in and listen to. You, you and I, we, we sit back and we often just sort of let the conversation happen. And this one was really, really fascinating. Not to compare myself to Rabbi Weider at all, but uh, many years ago in a previous life, I, I represented the UK in the Chidon HaTanakh. Um, I came a long way from winning um but you know he and i can can talk about that in a different a different context um but yeah this episode i i, I watched the Chidon on catch up recently and uh i did quite well i got like 40 points 40 points out of how many though no comment. <laughs> um so this i mean it's obviously a massive massive topic biblical criticism the jewish response to it um sort of tanakh scholarship uh, all these different things so Rabbi Weeder and Rabbi Dr. Berman really just sort of touched the surface um, of this topic. Uh, but you're, everyone is encouraged to uh, listen to Rabbi Weeder's um, Shiurim online. Uh, they're available from uh, YU Torah. Um, and of course, to go out and uh, read Rabbi Berman's book um, and his various uh, blogs and articles too. Um, but this was, as I said, a really, really fascinating episode. Um, and so we're all in for a real treat. Let's jump straight in. Welcome back to another episode of the Karen Podcast. Um, we have something very special lined up for this week's episode. Um, we are joined now by Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. Uh, Rabbi Berman is a professor of Bible at Barilan University um, and is the author of Ani Marmin, published last year by Mugged Books. Um, we're also joined by Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, uh, who is a Rosh Hashiva at the Rabbi Isaac Al-Khanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University, REIT. Um, we're going to be discussing today um, different approaches to uh, biblical scholarship uh, and learning uh, Tanakh. So uh, Rabbi Wieder and Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I suppose we'll, we'll start with a question and we'll see sort of where the conversation uh, takes us. Um, but could I ask, uh, ask you both, uh, sort of what's, what's your perception um, of uh, the general approaches to biblical scholarship, biblical criticism even, um, in the Orthodox uh, community. Uh, Rabbi uh, Wieder, we'll start with you. Um, so one of the things that I think that should be important to state 
at the outset of the conversation, and I would actually be really interested in what Rabbi Berman has to, his experience is, is there a difference between the United States uh, and Israel in this regard? Uh, so I'm only going to speak, obviously, to my context, and I don't know if they're the same, uh, but they might, they might be different. Uh, I would say that in our, in, in the United States, uh, in the community, there are, I would say, three approaches to, to dealing with biblical criticism. Uh, the predominant approach is to ignore it. Uh, that might stem mostly from the fact that people are either unaware or uninterested. Uh, and that might be true not only about biblical criticism, that might be a comment about the trends of intellectual engagement uh, in general with bigger ideas uh, in, in the community. Um, and I, don't, I think that's changed somewhat. I'm not sure how much it's changed. But I think in general, most any community, most of the community is not intellectual. Um, then there is, I would say, that... Uh, a small part of the community, and one never knows how large because only some people are vocal who feel the need to, who may, uh, may in effect uh, adopt the conclusions of biblical criticism. Occasionally there are people who, uh, perhaps in the spirit, in some cases, especially if they're not academics, where it's part of their work, in the spirit perhaps of the oversharing age in which we live, uh, feel the need to inform people that they've adopted this particular, a particular position. Uh, and then I would think that that's a probably a relatively small number. And then there's a also a very small segment, I think, who are engaged in one level or another of uh, responding, of thinking about what value, what what um, what benefits might be at least gained by uh, appreciating some of the insights of uh, biblical critics, even if one doesn't accept their uh, the basic premises. But nonetheless, it can certainly um, uh, sensitize one to certain issues that exist in, in, in Tanakh. Okay, well, let me, let me, uh, let me just say that uh, I, I've long known that Rabbi Weider uh, is, is, a, is a big London, and now I see he is a Navi, because I was thinking, I really want to talk to Rabbi Weider about whether there's any difference between how these issues are handled, these issues are handled in the U.S. and in Israel. So I, I want to I throw out a, a theory that I've been playing with for a long time, Rabbi Weider, and to, to see if if your experience uh, uh, verifies or, or, or is different. I, I just, before, um, you, before you begin, I, I just want to comment that, you know, I, I should be insulted because, you know, the Gemara Baba Basu says that, you know, Chara Beis Amikdash is what was taken from the Nevi'im and given to Shotim of Ketanim. So I'm not sure which one I fall in the category, but anyway, okay. please. Okay, it, it, was, it was meant innocently, yes. Okay. Um, 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 yeah, what was I going to say? So, um, uh, you know, we have we have the, the audience. I, I suspect uh, uh, are probably English-speaking Orthodox Jews from around the world. We have people who are listening to us who are in the U.S., in the U.K., and here in Israel. And probably, if you're listening to this episode about biblical studies and Orthodoxy, then probably almost all of us sitting, all of us speaking here, and all of us listening here probably fall into the same general oilum, as they say. Uh, we all, you know, have the same kind of uh, uh, religious Zionist, centrist, orthodox type of perspective. And that said, I see a big difference on, on hashkafic issues sometimes between the way that these are handled in Israel and the way that these are handled in the U.S. And I want to throw out a theory and hear what you have to say, Rabbi Weider. There's a big difference between the way questions are handled here and the way questions are handled in the U.S. For the following, for the following reason, I'll give two two concrete examples, and then we can talk about about biblical studies and how that fits into this theory. Uh, 
ever since ever since the beginning of of centrist orthodoxy in the U.S., let's say a hundred years ago, there has always been a situation where those that are in the center have uh, uh, have to deal with with competition on the left and on the right. On the left, whether it's called reform or conservatism, conservative or open orthodoxy or the Torah.com, whatever it might be, uh, or a whole slew of institutions that are that are associated with that with that with that type of approach. And this competition ideology ideologically and competition also for adherence. Are people going to be there or they're going to be here? You know, here being in the center. And then at the same time, there's also competition from the right, because if someone in the, who's in the middle uh, 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 enunciates a position that seems a little newfangled, a little bit different than what the standard line is, then immediately you, you, the incoming arrows from the right are, see, see, those people at YU, those people in the center, they're no different than the ones on the right. <laughs> and here again, there's this competition for in, ideologically and for adherence. So it goes in both directions, and this means that that so many issues are incredibly fraught when you're in the center. And here, even though I suspect that, that Rabbi Weider and I are on the same page, on it would take a long time probably to find really big differences between us, what I sense here in Israel is that there's much more um, uh, space, I would say, space for a seriously intellectually engaged religious Zionist thinker who also, you know, probably would have gone to a place like YU in the U.S., uh, to to experiment with ideas and positions because there is no competition from the left. There is no left. There's no religious left, so to speak. I mean, the Supreme Court decision the other day, notwithstanding that you know reform conser- and conservative conversions uh, can count for chokashvut, but but seriously speaking, there's no establishment left wing uh, orthodoxy here, of, really of any sort. And the right wing, the yeshiva world, is so right wing that there's no competition. They do what they do, and we do what we do. V'shalom Yisrael. And so this means that 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 a lot of Israel. And here I'll give two concrete examples, and then I want to ask you about whether biblical studies might also fit this paradigm. Just you know, we just just now Nishmat uh, marked 20 years since the establishment of the Yotzot Halacha program. I actually taught at Nishmat during those years when it was getting set up. Uh, and this was a really bold sort of thing. And it just seems to me that, that could never have happened at YU, that, you know, the idea of training women to answer halacha, to have women go to women for these questions rather than to local rabbanim. I just don't see this having gotten off the ground in the U.S. at any institution, YU or anywhere else. And it's maybe only because it got off the ground here in Israel that it was able to, you know, now take root in many places uh, uh, in the diaspora. A second example, um, as as many of our, our listeners will know, we have an intermarriage problem here in Israel. Yes, it's not the same; it's not quite the same as it is in the U.S. But a full five percent of all Israelis each year intermarry, and the reason that that's true is because we brought over all these Russian olim thirty years ago, twenty five and thirty years ago, and a lot of them technically, halakhically, were not Jewish, and so their kids now who are who are you know. Full, full Israelis in every sense of the word, but they're not Jewish, and so they get married. And so, uh, Rabbanim like Rabbi Novich Zecher Tzadik Livracha and Rabbi Riskin Shibada Lechaim Tovi Marukim and a whole bunch of other Rosh Yeshiva at the Gush and elsewhere have all gotten together and said, "Listen, we're going to have you know a Batei Din for Gear, and we're going to have a bar that's set for what Kabbalat Ol Mitzvot, the acceptance of the Mitzvot is." that is well well based in all sorts of sources, but perhaps a little different than what's been done in the last two or three generations, but it's certainly well-grounded in, in sources. This to me is a kind of uh, 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 halachic 
innovation and flexibility, which has been accepted here. I'd say everyone across the religious Zionist community has pretty much fallen in line with this, which could not have been done in the U.S. because of those those dynamics that I mentioned before. So this is a general dynamic that I see, and I'd like to know if you think that that difference, Rabbi Weider, is, 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 is a true one. Am I looking at something? That's, am I looking at it accurately? And then specifically with our issue tonight, I, I think that, that what I sense is that here in Israel, a lot of religious Zionist people that read, engage, but that are they're learning in yeshiva, but open books, and they open their computers, and they're exposed to you know, different approaches. You know, did these events happen? Are these is, is the Torah? You know, when what's when it's from, and is it from different sources? All these sorts of things. That these questions are entertained with a little less angst. They're they're threatening religiously, but the issue of what are they going to say from the left and what are they going to say from the right isn't here. And I think that that you, that therefore we sometimes hear a range of opinions about things and just a lower level of angst than what we hear in the States. There, I've thrown out my, my whole Megillah. Do you, do, you, do you agree? Do you think that, that, that this is, go ahead. So to, to respond in each of the two, the two examples that you cited from the realm of, let's say, halacha, um, so I, first, I think you're correct. Whether, whether that, that's the reason why, um, mm-hmm. or, or there is another reason why, um, and which I'll suggest one of the reasons, I think it's generally true, although even in the two examples you chose, I think what you said about the OS said is absolutely 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the issue with Gerus is a little, little bit less, a um, little bit less clear. Certainly, uh, I would even say that the, that the reason why Gerus has gotten so controversial and tight actually has to do with Israel, has to do with the Rabbanut and being mm-hmm. accepted. Um, in other words, the RCA didn't adopt its standards until there was the danger of the rabbin not recognizing their conversions. Um, and I, I think the gayless piece is a little less, I would say it's less ideological. It's not, a, it's not so much a hot button issue. Um, you know, the, the issue of, you know, and again, the issue in Israel is also a totally different issue. Right. Um, course, it's people who are culturally, almost, almost culturally Jewish. The United States is more is a very different kind no, of issue. I, I meant in terms of like the flexibility in halacha, right. like really, you know, so do I, things I think, that you, want, you know that that. I think generally, I, again, I think it's true. Israel allows more space. I think I don't think it's just because left and right. Hmm. Um, I think we, even even when it comes to our issue, to the extent that someone uh, you know adopting the tenets of biblical criticism and not subscribing to Torah and Hashemayim in something either the class truly the classical way or something close enough, um, the, the, you know, the danger of non-observance uh, and then assimilation is a serious consideration within the American Orthodox community. In Israel, when, when Jews are a majority, yes, you know, there's a minority uh, more, let's say more likely of intermarriage with Russians than, than probably with Arabs. Um, but in such a situation, it's always fraught. the majority culture, I think, always feels less angst. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think it's just because there's right and left. Very interesting. Um, but I, but I think that, I think the, I, and in this issue, I think it also, uh, I, I would say the issue of biblical studies probably falls somewhere, I would say, in between the Gairus and, uh, and the women's issues. The women's issues, everything is going to be viewed through a lens of, you know, uh, and I would say more concern of, you know, is this an agenda from somewhere else? Yeah. So yeah. But I, I think it's, I think there is much more space in general within the within the context of Israeli society than there is here. Very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'll just also add, since our hosts, Rabbi Weider, are both are both uh, British subjects, 
that my experience also is that is that in the UK there's also more openness than than in the US. Uh, I've I've been on podcasts with a couple of Rabbanim in the UK, and I've been surprised by how open they are and things that they've said that I don't think an American rabbi could say. Um, I'm not quite sure. What to what to what to, to what to attribute that to? Maybe we have to invite our our sponsors and hosts to weigh in. I'm not sure if they were ready for that, but I'll just I'm just throwing that out. I don't know. Uh. Um, I wonder in the UK if it's to do with the fact that um, yeah, I mean obviously I mean the United Synagogue is like the largest synagogue sort of centrist Orthodox uh, organization in the UK. Um, but something the UK is missing, I think, compared to America is really, you know, something like YU, which is like a real hub of Torah that sets like a bar and where you have Rosh Yeshiva who are embedded in communities around, you know, the New York, New Jersey area. Um, and I think that that has a in a positive way, I think that mm. has a big impact on the community in America, whereas in the UK, mm. I guess right. uh, maybe maybe sort of a almost like a le- there is centralization, but not the same level of centralization, which means that Rabbanim, in a way, are almost left to find their own way, or encouraged to find their own way. Right. Um, perhaps. I mean, the ten- the tension that that Rabbi Berman spoke about mm-hmm. certainly exists in the UK as well, yeah. and that it was something that. Right. Um, you know, when when Rabbi Sachs was the chief rabbi, was attention yes, that right, was right, you know, right. very much at the fore. And I think uh, you know, without I don't want to, I'm not speaking on anyone's behalf other than yeah. my own, obviously. But I think it's attention that still exists for Rabbi Mervis as the chief rabbi um, to sort of try and, and bridge those gaps. I mean, but I'm quite keen to try and get this back on track to talking about biblical biblical uh, scholarship. Um, I believe Arie had a question to. I mean, would you, I mean, think going back to, I guess, this comparison we have can, I mean, for either of you, can you think of an example within the realm of, of Tanakh, study or biblical scholarship, something that maybe could be considered a controversial, dangerous idea that maybe would be accepted in Israel, but would be rejected in the US and why that might be the case? I, I can, but I, I would prefer not to speak about that. Precisely because I think that it's important to speak, you know, to speak. I, I always aim uh, my words, you know, to whoever I'm talking to. Then, therefore, the fewer people that are listening to me, the more I can aim what I'm saying. And here, this is kind of open to to, to everything. But um, uh, anyone that wants to read through all of Ani Ma'amid is invited to contact me, and I, we can we can talk about that talk about that further. So that, that's that's uh, that's where I would leave that one. If I might volunteer uh, something which was not so much actually um, discussed in the book. I, my my and I, forgive me, I mean, didn't read every every note. Uh, and I may have missed things, um, but when I when we when I teach uh, in YU to students about, let's say the the value of ancient Near East and knowledge of the ancient Near East in the study of Tanakh, so I usually talk about uh, three things. Uh, I use the, I talk about the Rambam that Professor Berman talks about in the book, which is um, which is presumably the most controversial one of grounding uh, the uh, at least Torah Shabbat in a historical context. Uh, and in a geographical context. The second I talk about, uh, I'll call archaeology. I use the Ramban's example of discovering what he discovered, things that he saw when he came to Eretz Yisrael, the Nachtis HaShekel, Kever Rochel, as I'll call it rudim, very rudimentary archaeology. It's not actually digging, but it's it's seeing the realia. 
Uh, and the third is should be the least controversial is Rashi's use, not his personally, but his secondhand use of Arabic for certain uh, words, the use of, uh, you know, of, of uh, Semitic languages. Um, so I would imagine, I could be wrong with that, the archaeological issues, um, certainly the use of non-controversial archaeological uh, material will be certainly more common in Israel because you're living with it, right? You can, you can travel and see it. Here you can just read about it, read about it in the book. I'd imagine that that would be something maybe a little less controversial because you're living it. You, you know, it's not something in a faraway land. Um, whereas here, you know, it's, uh, again, it's not always met with controversy, but when, you, when I talk about certain things, when I talk about Hosam and Psil that the Yehuda, you know, gives to Tamar and what the Psilim are, um, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's totally foreign to, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a totally foreign world if you're living on the shores of the United States. I mean, it's a totally foreign world from the biblical world also, but um, so I would, I, would, I would imagine that that's something that should be less controversial in Israel, but Rabbi Derwin could probably speak to that more. You know, I think that there's there's an orientation here that 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 part of being you know a proud member of the Datilumi community is that you are you know grounded it literally grounded in the ground uh, you know and so so there's just an openness to realia let's say you know I mean on the times of Israel anytime anytime there's the slightest uh, uh, archaeological discovery of any significance at all it's right there on the front page with a huge big article. Um, and I think that's just, just part of living here. So yeah, that probably does, uh, I would say, create, again, a space here for people to be open to thinking uh, to thinking in these terms. Could be. I, I would say also that, that um, um, you know, there's, there's a, a huge difference in the way in which our Orthodox community discusses these issues when they're discussed out loud. That is, you know, someone writes an article, a rabbi gives a sermon, et cetera. And the discussions that go on as I would like to call them, under the shtender. Uh, people talking to one another, uh, the an- anonymity that comes from, from reading and posting on Facebook. If you want, you know, there's the number of people that I see that post about biblical studies that have pseudonyms, clearly, you know, because their names are like, you know, like things that couldn't be real, uh, uh, is astounding. And, and, and I mean, I, I daily get emails uh, and, and messenger messages on Facebook from all sorts of people, especially from the right, much to the right of, 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 of Rabbi Weider and myself, uh, uh, with interest, uh, with questions, uh, looking to explore more. So I think that's also an interesting dynamic that's happening in our community. So I think that that's a very interesting question. I mean, so I'm going to address a question to you, Rabbi Berman, but Rabbi Weider, I'm actually very interested in, in what you would have to say. Um, Rabbi Berman, you you, po- you posted recently that the first anniversary of the publication of the book was was uh, mm-hmm. shortly before we recorded, um, and you posted on on uh, on your Facebook page a story of how you and I think it's something you have spoken about a few times over the course of the last year um, of you were approached by a small group of mm-hmm. of I think Satma Hasidim yeah. from Williamsburg who had, yeah. had read your book and wanted to have um, uh, conversations with you um, regarding that so. I suppose my question for Rabbi Berman, and, and I'd be very interested to hear what Rabbi Weeder has to say, is what sort of impact, um, or what's the most surprising impact you think that your book, Ani Maman, has had um, over the last year, sort of that opened your eyes to the different ways of thinking? As in, this, this tension that you addressed, is, like said, you said you've been thinking about it for, for quite some time, um, but how has the book sort of helped shape that theory? And so Rabbi Weeder, sort of how do you think that 
um, books like Animamin um, have sort of changed their, your perception um, of, you know, how we address these uh, these issues of biblical criticism, biblical scholarship in uh, in the Orthodox okay. world. Well, I mean, you know, I'm postulators, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not one to talk about my book. But what I do see, what I do see is this. I think that we live in, a, in, in an increasingly decentralized age. That is, once upon a time, what a, per, what a good Jew believed is what his rabbis told him. Or and if it wasn't his shul rabbi, then it might have been, you know, the leading light of the age, whether it was, you know, Rav Soloveitchik or, or you know, or, or in, in communities to the right, whatever the leading person would say. And I, I, I find today that the, that people, you know, certainly in terms of uh, their halakhic observance, will always look to follow to fall in line because that's how our community remains remains uh, united. Uh, but I think on a, a lot of issues, especially hashkafic issues, uh, people are ready to trust their own judgments and make their own decisions because materials are just so available today. There's so much online on every on every issue. You can go and read a bunch of different things. Um, and, and what I see is that the book is helping a lot of people come to very different conclusions, by the way. It's not because I leave a lot, a lot of things open. Uh, and I just see people all the way from, from as far left as JTS and the American Jewish University, uh, which is kind of similar to JTS on the West Coast, um, uh, and all the way to the right, to Lakewood and Gateshead and Mir and Pressburg and, uh, and, and Satmer, all of whom have had graduates who have been in touch with me. Uh, people are looking to find their own peace with these with these issues, and uh, I, my my prayer is that the book not so much that it gives answers, it gives resources and it gives it gives avenues for people to consider. Uh, and I think that that this is happening in our world on a wide range of topics that people are bringing for themselves the autonomy to come to their own conclusions by listening to different people and reading different things. That's what I would say. I, one, of the, one of the questions I sort of want to throw out there, because uh, I suspect that Rabbi Berman deals with this more than I do before. I, I haven't had, for some reason, the last few years, I haven't been receiving as many questions about biblical issues. Very often, I was the, I'm the person in YU who will get the referrals. Um, but I, I found that that has kind of uh, not been so much in the last several years. Um, but I, I'm particularly struck by people from the right-wing world writing. And, and my question is, what were a group of Satmar Hasidim doing reading your book? Um, and my, 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 my experience, and I'd be curious, I, Rabbi Berman, and again, we, we occupy different chairs in a sense, um, but my experience when people are struggling with these issues um, and this is not meant to minimize at all the serious intellectual challenges, but there's usually something else going on as well. In other words, most of us can live with questions. Um, they only become unsettling for most of us when our lives become unsettling. Um, and, I, and, and so I don't know why, I don't know why I've been receiving fewer questions. Maybe, maybe they found a better outlet to ask their questions to here. Um, but but I, I am... I, I guess I, I haven't heard so much discussion about the book, but I haven't been hearing people talk yet. Well, it's also been true. This has been a pandemic. So people had bigger problems to deal with. It would be very interesting to see as the world returns to normal, what happens. And maybe that maybe that's why, especially in the last year. Um, but I, I'd be actually curious, you know, to see the, the reception, the people who are 
you know, writing to Robert Berman, to what extent, and you may not, you may not be able to get a gauge of this, but maybe your previous experience has, has at least informed you in some way, to what extent are people also grappling with other things? And this is just kind of the valve, this is where, and again, I don't, I don't, I'm not minimizing the questions, right. um, but sure. this is where it's being expressed. No, I, I think your intuitions are, are spot on, Rabbi uh, Weider. I, I wonder whether the, 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 the decline in the number of questions uh, for Rabbi Weider amongst the students at YU, does that have anything to do with the decline of the Bible department at YU, that enrollment there is way down for all sorts of structural reasons that, that have to do with YU, I wonder? It, 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 I would suspect that it has less to do with that uh -huh. and more to maybe maybe there's a change either in the demographic of student we're getting a little bit uh, or that, that's that's probably a part because I, I don't think most of our students, students who would encounter this material for the first time in YU are generally doing it in a safe environment mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. with people that they even in the department that they can talk to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I suspect that we part of it is. Uh, that we have maybe a little bit of shifting of the student, and part of it may be a shifting even in the community. Um, away, you know, I I I I say it. Uh, you know, uh, people have claimed that uh, that that the gap between YU and the yeshiva world has been narrowing, non-orthodox world and the yeshiva world has been narrowing um, in many different areas where positions have become less strident. And one of them, sadly, happens to be you know Torah Mada or Torah Parnasa. Um, even my you know uh, even friends I know who was went to the Ivy Leagues, whose children went to the Ivy Leagues, no longer pretend they're going to the Ivy League schools is about really getting this, you know, ultimate liberal arts education, you know, broad, uh, you know, Renaissance person. It's just about pronouncing. You know, you go to an Ivy League school, you get better connections, you, you get a better job, you make more money, and the cycle just... And you can afford day school tuition. Yeah. Right, right. No, that's, right. That, that's, certainly, that's certainly a part of it in the United States. So I think in right. general, even to the extent we'd be getting some of the same students, they their minds are engaged uh, somewhere else. Right, right, right. So I, as I as I started to say, I think that the are most troubled are troubled. <laughs> that are they're troubled with other this other. I you know I I always whenever I get an email I you know oh you know uh, Berman I read your book or didn't read your book and you know what do you say about this what do you say about that you know thank you Yankee you know and then I write back to Yankee. and I'll, I'll always say Yankee, uh, tell me a little about yourself you know what's going on in your life. And inevitably, you know, I see that the ones that are that are struggling the most uh, often there's other struggles that are going on too. However, that said, there are plenty, plenty, plenty of very normative, grounded people, especially I would say in their early 30s. Especially I would say one stop to the right of YU, guys who have learned in yeshivas, yeshivas, but have also gotten a degree for Parnassa and are now working in the professions. Uh, and are online all the time, like all of us are, and therefore have come across this stuff. Um, there's a lot of, I see a lot of people like that who, who, who are also, who have serious questions, um, in, in spite of the fact that their lives seem to be, seem to be fairly well put together. I think with the, with the Satmer uh, uh, thing, in fact, it's not just these five guys. They promised me, and they've told this to me, because I've been in touch with them the entire year. They've said, you know, when you are in New York, we have easily 30 guys that want to hear you you know, talk about this stuff. And and I wonder whether, I, I don't know enough about Satmar, but I, I think that all of us looking in from the outside, and maybe you have a deeper understanding of a reader than I do, because I really have very little, I've, I don't think I've ever been to Brooklyn. I, I was, I, I'm, I'm just exaggerating a little bit. I mean, I'm from Riverdale, uh, just north of the Bronx, but I, you know, I really don't know Brooklyn well at all. 
Um, all of us who've ever had any contact with Chabad, for example, you can see the Chabad Nikim are not, it's not just that they live in a certain community. Actually, they live all over the place, right? But they're extremely committed to the ideology and the philosophy and the teachings. For this Chabura in Williamsburg, this is not the case. That is, I don't, my, my sense is that they, they feel a certain degree of autonomy from, uh, they, they told the party line, you know, they're raising their families in a very Satmar way, you know, segregation, roles for men, roles for women, all that. They, they, they speak with, you know, European accents like my, my bubby and your bubby, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's astounding. You know, they're, they're Native Americans. But intellectually, they, they seem to have declared for themselves a degree of autonomy uh, from whatever the, the reigning teachings are there. Um, uh, and I, I, so it doesn't seem to me that, that, that Satmar as, as a whole system of machshava, as a whole system of social life lived, they're totally bought in, they dress the part, everything. But in terms of the intellectual realm, I don't think that they find it satisfying or they don't find that it guides enough. And so that gives them the autonomy since I think they're secure enough in just, as one of them put it to me, oh, we are so far to the right that we can do this stuff and there's no problem. I guess there's some logic to that that defies, you know, us in the center who are constantly afraid of sliding this way and that way, they ain't sliding. So um, that, that's what I think, that's what I think is going on. And, and it's, you know, they're reading a lot of stuff, this Chabu, a lot, a lot of things. Again, it's certainly not, it's not the majority that are there, but there's enough of them and they know about each other. And, you know, this is, as I say, under the stender and they have their WhatsApp group and, uh, and away it goes. Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful thing. You know, I think that uh, uh, the, the the trend that you said, Rabbi Weider, is true, that the, the gap between modern orthodoxy and, and right-wing orthodoxy is closing as as maybe modern orthodoxy moves somewhat to the right and also in terms of, you know, lack of interest perhaps in some of these intellectual issues. And the irony is, is that there's an awakening on the right, not, not the whole right, not even the most of the right. But, uh, you know, I spoke I spoke to one fellow who read my book who's who's been learning in Lakewood for 30 years. And he does what they call their inreach. You know, we all know about outreach, you know, Kirov. Inreach in, 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 in Lakewood is where you help the guys who were born into the system, have been learning for a whole bunch of years, and they're struggling. They have questions. And, and, and he told me that this is not a small number and that, uh, you know, that there's a lot of people who are, you know, it, you go online. You just, there's, no, there's no filter that keeps all this stuff out. And so for fellows that are intellectually, you know, uh, uh, curious and sharp, and there's certainly a lot of those, um, there's, there's more and more of this. And I, I think that the, the convergence that you spoke of, Rabbi Weider, is actually going to come from both directions. That's what I see. Not everybody on both sides, but you can, you can see trends that are bringing things together. And I think that's a wonderful thing, actually. I mean, you mentioned Rabbi Weed, you mentioned obviously questions in, in for coming from YU students, and we talked about um, YU, and we've talked about summer, obviously. What do you think, I mean, both of you, from your experience and your perspectives, what do you think we can do to best arm, you know, young people and students who are entering, I guess, what in America is known as secular college campuses. In England, we just call it, you know, university campuses. Um, and, you know, what can we do to help them to face challenges that, you know, they might be facing? I mean, speaking from a personal experience actually reminds me of a story. I studied Jewish history in uh, University College London. And basically the first lecture I had after coming out of Yeshiva two years was, you know, why 
the flood story comes from uh, the epic of Gilgamesh, and you know that you know came from there. You know, that comes straight out of yeshiva, and I obviously I could run out of the lecture and make a phone call to one of my friends who's still in yeshiva and say, "What do I do?" and gave me some good advice. But just wondering from your perspective in terms of what you think what we can do for people in that situation. Okay, so I I think that. Um you know, this is a difficult question because, uh, you know, how much do we expose young minds to and, and at what stage, uh, especially when even now, most for most, this is not an issue. And, and you know, rule number one is do no harm. Right. Uh, that said, um, in fact, just this past week, I, I, I taught a seminar at uh, uh, Kushner Torah Academy, which is the Yeshiva High School. Uh, in New Jersey, they had, we had they had a little seminar on biblical criticism, and I, I you know taught over Zoom. Um, and what I saw was that for there were about I don't know it was self-selective. The kids, it's one of these voluntary seminars. A lot of schools do this senior year. They have like these little like three-week seminars on all sorts of hot topics. So I was one of the hot topics. And um, um, uh, what I saw is that there were about five or six guys who were really lit up on this, and for them it was great. The rest, I don't know what they thought of it, uh, to be quite honest. Um, I think the most important thing, more than than giving seminars to 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 high school students on this stuff, because you don't know always what the effect of that will be for good or for less good, is that the the, 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 the kids and everyone in our in our community need to know that there are resources, that there are thoughtful uh, uh, individuals of spiritual authority who have given thought to this and to whom they can turn to to talk to. Uh, I think that the the situation where we never ever acknowledge that these issues even exist ultimately uh, over time is counterproductive. Maybe once upon a time that was that was a winning strategy, but I don't think it is anymore. I think that it leads too many people to the conclusion when they do get out there, whether it's in a university course or probably long before when they just open their computer and they say, you know, wow, no one in high school ever mentioned any of this stuff. And either they don't have anything to say or they were hiding from us. So I think that just to get the, I think it's important that, that let's say high school nubby teachers uh, in subtle ways say, you know, I'm aware or bring, bring stuff from archeology span or bring stuff from biblical studies that, that sends out the message. Hey, I know a lot more than, than, than just the, the Rashi that's printed on the page here. And I think that that's that's important because then that dispels the notion that that, that uh, these people don't know anything, these rab- these rabbis don't know anything, and they're pulling the wool over our eyes. That's my that's my feeling. Um, I would say three things. Uh, the, the first one, um, but this is neither here nor there, is and uh, maybe a story might best uh, illustrate it. A number of years ago, a very close friend, a very close college friend of my wife's, uh, they, she was a part of a JLIC couple at Brandeis. And uh, they came, you know, they'd been there a couple of years and they, they came, this goes back probably at least 15 years, maybe more. And, you know, they came, they stopped by to visit and, um, and we were assuming like the p- kinds of problems they would have, especially with certain courses at Brandeis, the students must be struggling with these issues. And they just laughed at us. It's like, no, the students are not struggling. These, these are not the issues they're struggling with. Um, uh, so, you know, I, 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 it, when, I, when I think about those issues, but maybe truly these issues as well, it, it brings to mind the Gemara Brachos about the father who, who fed and, and gave his son to drink, and he bathed him, and he put on nice clothing, and he was Moshiva, but he, he hung a, a, a purse of gold coins from his neck, Moshiva, but Pesach Shalzonos, Mayasa ben Shaloyechta. Now, this is much, much more relevant, and not on biblical issues, on, on non-intellectual issues. Right. Although that's a that's a question to be asked as well. Um, that, right. You know, that's a, I think not a problem, not 
probably less of a problem in Israel for many, many reasons. But in the United States, in, in the modern Orthodox community, the fetishizing the secular college experience, um, while it certainly has certain real benefits, uh, one wonders that that's the first question to ask. Uh, then what Rabbi Berman said, I think, is absolutely crucial, um, which is, I think students need to know that we know that these questions, these issues exist. Um, you know, when I teach the introduction, the intro to Bible course that uh, some of us teach at YU, I spend five to 10 minutes just talking about the documentary hypothesis very briefly, maybe five minutes, not, maybe not even, just so the students are aware that I'm aware of it, that, that after they finish my course and they go out and they're reading something online, oh, you mean almost the entire academic, you know, scholarly world assumes that there were multiple authors to the Torah and so on, like, you know, and they don't even know anything about some So I think it's, I think that point is absolutely crucial that on some level, um, whatever you choose to teach them about it, they are aware that you are aware um, of this. Um, and then the, the, the final thing, which I think to me is very interesting and, and um, uh, which is, and this is, it, it, I don't call it inoculation, but I think that very often when, we, when students, when all of us are exposed to subjects, areas of study, especially if it's not an area in which we are you know, thoroughly versed, we're not aware of sort of the presuppositions in, every, in any particular field. Um, and, and I would take an example that I think Rabbi Berman doesn't talk about in the book because it's not an issue that really can be addressed. I, I would posit the following question. Supposing we had a biblical text that uh, predicts the future and it predicts it accurately. And most biblical prophecies, okay, are, tend to be somewhat ambiguous, but, um, but it predicts the future accurately. What would the response automatically be in academia? And I think the response from a Durham will correct me is that automatically it's assumed that the prophecy must have been written in you know, X events, right? It had to be written after the events because otherwise, because prophecy is impossible. Now, we can debate whether or not it was one author to the Torah, there were multiple authors, we can debate all sorts of issues, but you can't really have a rational debate in the realm of whether prophecy exists or not. It's by definition a proposition you either believe in or you don't believe in, you know, and you can't prove it one way or the other. The, the deeply rooted assumption in, in the academy is secular. I, I say that not as a criticism, but just as a description. If you are a mom and walking into that context, you sort of have to realize that at the outset, because I think that, that those kinds of issues spill over in general. Again, it's not that the question of, of, of authorship of, of the Torah isn't the real question that can be engaged through a purely intellectual lens. But the presuppositions that we bring, some of which are not even subject to rational debate, you have to understand the context in which you're walking, right? If you are, if I, if I open up Fox News or CNBC an article about something, so I know immediately when I'm opening up what my assumption of the bias of the authors in that particular website are. But our, our students can walk in. It doesn't have to be only in, 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 in Jewish studies, but this is obviously the area that's most, most potentially dangerous for us. They should be, it's important that they're aware of what the presuppositions of the field are and to the extent that those may simply at the outset be opposed to where they're starting or we, where we hope they're starting. So I think that as a last element, I think it's important um, for the students who are likely to be encounter these types of things to understand sort of what the, I would call the reka in which everything is being set. So, I mean, Rabbi <clears throat> Berman, you, you mentioned this uh this concept that, that you've encountered of, of inreach um, as sort of being the, the, the sister of outreach. Um, so I wonder whether, oh, I, I wonder what, what your views would be on, you know, y using um, this, uh, I suppose, showing an awareness 
um, to these various different arguments um, and theories, um, using those as a form of inreach or outreach and trying to keep, um, not just like young people, but trying to keep, you know, anyone sort of in the fold? Um, or are these ideas that, you know, why raise them? Why, why open the Pandora's box? Um, you know, what, what do you think is, is the correct approach? Is it something that we should just sort of let everyone know we're aware of, but just sort of leave it there? And, you know, as we say, Hamid and Yavin, those, those who want to ask will come and ask. Um, or do you think that there is a, a genuine benefit um, to engaging and, and, and tackling these issues? Um, yeah, um, no, I think I, I think that this is this is much more than just a question of of uh, uh, keeping souls in and keeping souls out. And I agree with what Rabbi Weider said that I think that usually when you get to that stage that someone is really teetering, it's not just about the intellectual stuff, maybe not even primarily about the intellectual stuff. Um, I think that, that that engaging biblical studies is important as an act of Talmud Torah for the very same reasons that the Rambam did. You know, I mean, if I can just share one thing now, we're now just a few weeks before Pesach, you know, uh, um, uh, it's one that I like to quote, and this is something everyone can take to their Seder table, okay? Uh, we know at the in the Haggadah, we have this phrase that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim, biyad chazaka uvizroa Haggadah uses that phrase many times, and it's in Chumash many times. Now, if you think about that, we've probably never thought much about, you know, yeah, right, that's just a nice way of describing, you know, the Gevura, the, the mighty acts that the Rebona Shalom did at the, at the time of Itzias Mitzrayim. Um, if you think about how the Tanakh uses that phrase, it's very interesting because you would expect that almost any time that, that, that there's a type of otomofet, you know, a miraculous occurrence, that the Torah would say, or the Tanakh would say, yeah, and there goes a Kurdish Baruch with his Yad Chazakam, Vizran Etuyan. It turns out that, that almost exclusively this phrase is used with regard to the events of Yitziat Mitzrayim and nowhere else, sometimes usually just a parody, Yitziat Mitzrayim, but it's really just about the Exodus. And then when we go back to the to the to the to the the the, the, the texts uh, that 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 uh, um, that celebrate the acts of the pharaohs from the time of Shiabud Mitzrayim, let's say the latter half of the second millennium BCE, what we see is that routinely the pharaohs are described as doing great things with their mighty hand and their outstretched arm. Whether it's a, a military victory, whether it's a hunting escapade, whether it's finding a big diamond as they were walking along, oh, the Pharaoh did that with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And what's going on there is that the Torah is engaging in what's called cultural appropriation. It's it's outfaring the Pharaoh. It's stealing their thunder. It's 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 a, a form of cultural resistance that we, as the oppressed, take the pro, the, the propaganda of the oppressor and make it our own to down him. Uh, I'm sorry. Subversion. Yes, absolutely. And so, by and so, I think that this this is an incredibly enlightening uh, 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 insight into this phrase Yad Chazakav is You only get that from Egyptology, and you know what that tells us about 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 the about the Torah, and it you know that that uh, so I and there's, and there's a ton, there's a ton of this stuff, there's a ton of this stuff in the book. So it has nothing to do with you know proving God, proving this about the Torah, but simply shedding light on the Torah. Uh, through exposure to a lot of uh, ancient recent things, and I think as as, as, uh, as Rabbi Weider mentioned, and I say in the book, you know, this was this was a derech that that, that the Rambam championed, uh, and and, refer, and goes back to it many many times in in, in the third chelik of the Marnevuchim. So that's why I think it's really important, just first and foremost, as part as one of the seventy faces of our of our Talmud Torah. I would just I would just add and reemphasize that point. We the, the, a lot of the a lot of the discussion has been framed. In the context, I'll call Dama Shetashiv, um, but I think Rabbi Berman's point cannot be 
uh, under cannot be overemphasized. Um, the the it it sometimes it comes with challenges, but the there is almost there is enormous value uh, in. Uh, in, in any number of areas of biblical studies that enable one to understand Shuto Shamikra in a way that one simply could not have understood it without that information. Um, and I, I suspect that the, the, these are things that, you know, Rashi and, and Rashbam certainly and Ramban would have probably killed to have access to. Mm-hmm. And we are lucky enough to have access to. As a, as a final question, obviously we've heard from both of you in terms of the incredible benefits that um, different ways of approaching Tanakh can have from a Talmud Torah perspective and from other perspectives. Um, for both of you, I guess, starting Rabbi Wieda, do you think there's, what would, are there any, I mean, what would be the downsides, let's say, of engaging with some, you know, some of these approaches to learning Tanakh, whether it's biblical criticism or, or other elements? Um, and would, is there a difference between Chumash and Nach and when it comes to that as well? Well, I, I think the, the primary downside I think Talmud Torah is supposed to enhance one's spiritual standing. Um, and different people can respond in different ways uh, to the same thing, even when it's not, you know, theologically problematic. I, I look at the, you know, the, the, the cylinder seal and I understand Yehuda and Tamar and the Chosam and the seal differently in a way. But, you know, the, but for me, that's incredibly enlightening. But the fact that Rashi didn't understand it doesn't, lower his esteem in my eyes, I just realized I'm standing on the giants of shoulder and lucky enough to have that. But there are some people for whom something that is innocuous as that can be unsettling. I'm not even talking about things that are truly theologically problematic. So I think the, you know, the, the question of introducing materials in, it always depends upon the context. Shuto um, Shilmikra to me is, to me, inspiring and enlightening. But I would say for 90% of people, it's, it's, it's very dull and deadening, right? Midrash is which to me is also very powerful, is much more powerful to them. So how you study, you know, the tools of approaches you take in the study of Tanakh um, should be tailored, aside from pursuing truth, should be tailored to what enhances the spiritual, you know, uh, state of the person who's studying them. Uh, and just very quickly, when it comes to your, your the question uh, about, you know, Torah versus Nevi'im, obviously on a theological, uh, technical question of prob- problematic nature, um, it's obviously not not uh, the same. Um, you know, we could have a debate whether or not if one, you know, uh, you know, if one, if, if the Abarbanel, you know, disputes Chazal's authorship, you know, of Shmuel and attributing to Yermio instead of to Shmuel and God and Nassim or whatever it is, how theologically, it's clearly less theologically problematic than, you know, making claims about the Torah. Um, uh, and I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't minimize that on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, I would say the methodologies are in principle the same. Uh, it's kind of intellectually high, hard to bifurcate. Uh, and uh, not that people haven't. There's certain people have done that. Um, and I think that, again, the question I would ask is, to what, to what end is one enge- is using these methodologies? Is it going to spiritually enhance, you know, people's, you know, uh, state or, or not? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I, I, I seem to, uh, there is a downside. There is a downside for some people, uh, as Rabbi Weider says. It very much depends on the person. Sometimes when I when I when I teach this stuff, not even the stuff of you know here are the problems that they raise and here are things you know ways that we can deal with that, but even stuff that I think is going to be enlightening, like the example I gave before, I find that some people respond in the following way. Their their, their response is you know the way in which I grew up. 
thinking about the Torah is that this is, you know, it's a divine text. It communicates in a divine way, which is totally removed from the human realm. And so to hear that, ah, aha, we now understand something in Chumash because we can root it in the way a bunch of pagans wrote and thought, you know, 3,000 years ago. Oh, really? I, I thought this was the Rebona Shalom's Torah, not some Egyptian's Torah from 3,000 years ago. So for some people, this is a kind of a, 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 a letdown. That I, I have found that. Okay, and then so therefore the answer is okay. So there, those people should find you know modes of Talmud Torah that uh, that work for them. And so yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, I don't think the Rambam made any distinction between Nach and Torah about these things. I think that in fact all the things that he says in the Mor or almost all the things that he says in Mor Nevuchim, ah, this this is because of the way they did it three thousand years ago. I think having to do with Chumash, things having to do with the the Avoda and the Mishkan primarily. So. No distinction there for the Rama. I think uh, that's a good place to to, to end. Um, so thank you both so much uh, for joining us. Um, it's been fascinating and, and, and enlightening to, to to witness this conversation. Um, and uh, you know, I think these are certainly issues that I wrestled with. Um, that I know that sort of many of our listeners wrestle with as well, and I think just to hear two two great minds discussing it and talking about it openly and frankly um, is you know, hugely important. Um, and so, again, okay, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Okay, thank you, Alex and Rabbi Berman. A pleasure. I'm sorry it's you know taken so long, but uh... okay. So this is a down payment. It's a start, and Amir Hashem, uh, when when we're in the same neck of the woods, we will continue it further. <laughs> I look forward. I read your book, and I thought like you had stepped into stepped into my classroom and stolen some of my materials. Not, not, oh. No, I, I want to make very clear: you know, far more in biblical studies and Egyptology. I don't mean that, but sort of the ways of thinking about things. It was like, oh, huh, you know, Baruch Shativanti, Baruch Shativanti. That's terrific. So that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you again to Rabbi Wida and Rabbi Dr. Berman for joining us. Um, some of the things Rabbi Berman mentioned, especially his uh, his interaction with the small group of Satma Hasidim in Williamsburg. Um, since we recorded uh, before Pesach, he's actually been to Williamsburg um, and spent a Shabbat there with uh, his newfound students and friends. Um, you can read about that um, on a blog post that he put online. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, Arie, if people want to get in touch with us, how can they do so? You can send us an email at podcast at corinpub.com and you can also find Corin on all the regular social media outlets at Corin Publishers. And don't forget, next time you visit us at www.corinpub.com, you can get 10% off your order using promo code podcast at checkout. Um, so now is a great time to pick up yourself a copy of Rabbi Berman's book, Animamin, um, from corinpub.com. Until next time. This has been the Corin Podcast.
Hi everyone, Alex Strucker here. I just wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from the Corin Podcast Network called I've Got a Question, hosted by Shira Greenspan. Um, it's a place for kids to ask questions about Torah, Israel, Judaism, anything they like. Uh, and Shira goes and she speaks to experts from uh, a, a range of different uh, areas uh, to try and find the answers to your kids and your students' questions uh, and even dig up some questions of her own. Um, it's a really, really fantastic show. It's a wonderful way to spend half an hour uh, engaging with something meaningful with your kids. We cannot recommend it highly enough. That's I've Got a Question, available wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.